Turning your Bibles to John 17. Before we do much of an introduction, we will read our passage up front. And our focus will be on verses 20 to 26 at the end of the chapter. I'm going to rewind a little bit before that, though, to give us some context. I'll start reading in verse 16. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. John 17, starting in verse 16, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known to them so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This wraps up our study in John 17, these, this longest prayer, this last prayer of Christ before the very next day he would go to the cross. Uh, he anticipated the hostility and pull of the world. Through, throughout this prayer, we see that reflected, that the world is described as both something that will be hostile to God's people and, and pulling God's people. And so in light of that, he prays, and he prays, Father, keep them, preserve them. And Father, sanctify them, change them, make them holy. But remember, if you were here last week, we saw it's not just this defensive or certainly antagonistic attitude towards the world, but, but it's so that we would be sent into the world. Keep them, sanctify them, so that they may be sent. It shows Jesus' heart for this world, even this world that was rejecting him, that many may still come. And so he prays, and he prays for his people. And in this final section, these themes are, are woven together. We see some of them continue to pop up. It is a remarkable section, I think, for the, the tenderness of Christ that we see here. Jesus doesn't just want us as soldiers in his war or tools in his toolbox, but he wants, he wants us. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to be united with him. And then by extension, because we're united with him, to be united with all others that are united with him. But he'll say things in here over and over again, things like verse 21, that they may be, may be in us. Talking about the Father and Son and the people may be in them, so intimately connected as to be in him. He describes the way that the Father loves him and then loves us. Verses 23 and others. 
Verse 24, he expresses a desire that we would just simply be with him one day. When this life is done, that we would be with him. So it expresses his heart, I think, in this culminating section of this prayer. We're going to try to give a bit of an outline, but I'll warn you up front, it's not a passage that lends itself well to outlines. It kind of swirls around and themes pop up and recede and pop back up again. And so there's a bit of an outline. It's not a great outline, I'll tell you that. The outline begins with this, this request, this final specific request that we may be one. If you're remembering the words, four words to remember this prayer, glorify, that was the first request, keep, sanctify, and now maybe unify is a word, or that we may be one, that we may be one. This emphasis here is on unity. First, of us with him and the Father, and then by extension, with one another. But it begins with that, with Jesus in many different ways describing the way in which he is one with the Father. And I'll tell you guys, with this outline that's not great, it's loaded at this first point. We'll spend more time at this first point than the others because if we get this first point, kind of our hands wrapped around it, the others really fall into place. He describes the way in which he is one with the Father. Look at verse 21. After verse 20, we've seen many times of extending this prayer out to all of us, those who believe in him through the word, not just the disciples. Verse 21, he says, that they may be all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. This language begins with his unity with the Father. And it is a unity that has been a theme of John's gospel. And it's not merely a unity of purpose, although that's there. It's a very unity of essence. It's the mystery of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Spirit united together. Uh, Just to see the way this pops up in John's gospel, even before John 17. John 14, 10. Do you not believe, speaking to his disciples, that I am in the Father... And the Father is in me. The words that I say, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So there's a sense in which I am in the Father and he is in me. And yes, I'm doing these works, but he is working in me through this. We are in complete union. But it's not merely a union of, like, we're on the same team. There's this mystical thing we call the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit united together. John 8, 29. He who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's this functional union of I'm doing the things that are pleasing to him. That's certainly a part of it. But in John 10, he goes back to this essence. John 10, verse 30. He just says straight up, I and the Father are, are one. In John 10, he's speaking to a hostile crowd. He's speaking to a crowd of religious Jewish Pharisees, and he makes this statement, and do, do you know how they respond? They don't say, oh man, that's, that's really neat. They pick up rocks. They plan to stone him because they say, this is blasphemy. They, they understood what he was getting at, that he was claiming to be one with God himself. And they didn't like it. And Jesus' response isn't to say, whoa, 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 you misunderstood me. You know, put down the rocks. That's not what I meant. No, he presses into that further. And he says, look at my works. Look at the works I'm doing. These works testify that what I'm saying is true. I and the Father are one. And so you have a choice to reject or accept that. But he doesn't pull away from this. 
Father and Son are, are one. They're fully united in purpose and priorities, but also in essence. And there is a love that exists between the Father and Son that extends back even before our very world. Look at verse 24. This is where we jump kind of through this passage to see these themes. Look at verse 24, second half of the verse. He says, For you loved me, Jesus talking to the Father, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. The uncreated, self-existing God, before he made this dusty planet and all of us on it, already existed and existed in perfect love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Sometimes it kind of blows kids' minds when they realize, like, oh, my parents had a relationship before I was born, right? Because, like, what? I thought everything started when I was born. And they had to learn, like, no, we, we had a life before you. Um, and, and Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. Before all of this was created, he was already there, which is another reminder of the uncreatedness of Jesus, his eternity. And the Father and Son, and the Spirit's not talked about here, but it would be true of the Spirit as well. We're in perfect relationship with one another. Ancient question in philosophy uh, around the world and throughout time that, that thinkers have wrestled with is why is there something rather than nothing? Why, why is there a world? Why is there a universe? Why am I here? Why is all this stuff here instead of nothing? And they've reasoned that Something must have made it. There must be something outside of all of the universe that started it. Because it can't just start itself. Nothing can't just create nothing. It must be outside of that. It must be uncreated. It must be incredibly powerful. It must be incredibly intelligent. It can reason, in that sense, to the existence of God. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, where he says all creation declares the power and glory of God. But what we could not reason to, unless God had told us, is that this God was characterized by love, even before he made all of this. He's characterized by love, perfect love. His love did not begin with us, it began with him and his very nature. And, and here's why that is such good news. Because that is part of God's very nature. It, it extends to his relationship with us. E even again, to kind of think of parents and kids. Kids, like, they squirm when mom and dad show affection to each other, right? If they walk around the corner and dad's smooching mom, the kids are like, oh, gross. But you know what? They kind of like it. Because it tells them, oh, my parents love each other. My, my parents are secure. And, and because of that, I, I'm secure in this relationship that is bigger than me. And in an imperfect way, that gives us a glimpse of the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit that exists apart from you as part of God's very nature. And then as we see here, that extends to you. Because not only are the Father and Son united, but we, if we've trusted in Christ, are united with Christ. And we'll see that that love then is extended to us. So he prays, Father, would they be one even as we are one? And then he describes our union with him swirling throughout here. Look again at verse 21. That they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us. Comes up again in verse 23. I in them and you in me. 
comes up in verse 26, very end. The love with which you love me, baby, in them and I in them. He uses the language of unity to describe us as being united with Jesus when we trust in him. This is what MacArthur and Mayhew in their book, Biblical Doctrine, are, are describing here when they talk about our union with Christ. Say, it's not that Christians merely worship Jesus, obey him, or pray to him. Those, those privileges would surely be enough, and we certainly do those things. Rather, they, that is us, are so intimately identified with him and he with them that Scripture says they are united. He is in them, and they are in him. And once you notice this language in Scripture, you cannot get away with it. You cannot get away from it, sorry, throughout the New Testament. We, we see in Romans 6, for example, that we have died with him. Romans 6, 8. Romans 6, 3. We have been buried with him. We have been raised with him in Colossians 3, 1. We have been enthroned in heaven with him in Ephesians 2, 6. We are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Christ is in us, Romans 8.10. These themes just come up over and over again in these loaded prepositions. We are in with Christ, and he is in and with us. This ends up being incredibly important. It's not just a kind of a theological, trivial thing. Because if you are united with Christ then all that is Christ is credited to you in the sense of his righteousness. And your sin is credited to him, and he takes it all. So that, look at the, the language in verse 23. It is remarkable. We'd already saw that Jesus said, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. And look at the end of verse 23. He says, and you loved them even as you have loved me. Says, Father, you love them, that is your disciples, that is you in this room, and that is me. Says, you loved them even as you loved me. That word even as can be translated in proportion to, or just as, or to the degree that. He loves you just as, to the degree as, to the same proportion as he loves the Son. Friends, I don't know about you. I, I do not feel very lovable. Some days, some weeks, my lifetime, right? There's, we often don't feel lovable, and we're, we're, we're not in many ways. And yet, God's love, he says, is for you. It's for me in Christ, just as he loves Christ. Why? Because, not because I'm lovable, not because you're lovable, but because I'm united to Jesus. So that means his love is Full, it's inexhaustible, it's unstoppable, it is unending. And on your worst day, it's not any less. And on your best day, it's not any more. It doesn't rise and fall with your performance. It is steady. And steady because it is based on your union with Christ. Because you are united with Him. Because of these realities, Father and Son united together... Us united with Christ, he prays that we would be then united with one another. This, that this vertical unity of us with Christ would spill out into unity with one another. And in one sense, that is just true. That if we are united with Christ, then we are united to all others that are united with Christ. That God has given you brothers and sisters in Christ 
whether you like it or not and whether you like them or not. He just has adopted you into this family. And whether you're getting along with them or not, you are, you are placed into a family that is bigger than yourself. And you are united with them. That's an objective sense. And then what he prays here is that that would be perfected in practical unity. Look how it comes up here. He prays in verse 21 that they may be one. Um, he prays in verse 23 that they may be perfected in unity. That's an experiential, growing, practical unity among believers. Not a theoretical, well, I guess we're all in the same family and we'll be in heaven together, but we want to be around them now. No, it's a real, practical unity that's present tense. It's the type of unity that Paul is describing, I'll skip a few verses here, in Philippians 2, where he says to the Philippians who were getting divided over various things. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That is this language of, of unity here, same mind, thinking big picture about the same things, on the same mission, the same purpose. It's the unity described in Ephesians 4, and passage we actually came back to many times when we were going through 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians talks so much about unity. But, but notice this, Ephesians 4, 3 to 6. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. This is this objective unity. Whether you like it or not, you are united with all those who are part of Christ because there's only one body and there's only one, one Savior. It's Christ. But then we're to be diligent to make that a reality in our experience, our everyday experience, not just a theory. And that's where it gets hard. And that's where Jesus prayed and prayed for that. Uh, what makes unity a challenge? What makes it hard? Uh, a few things. Sometimes it's because that trickles down to secondary and other issues that are, that are not at the core of the gospel, but it becomes where churches expect that everybody's going to agree not just on first-level priorities, but then we all got to like the same music. And we have to uh, read all the same books. And we have to have the same views on COVID. And we have to have the same views on racial issues. And we have to have the same view on homeschooling versus public versus private. And it trickles down to where the unity is like the unity of one. It's, it's you, <laughs> right? Like, unless everybody agrees with every opinion, then I'm going to pull away from them. And friends, a body can't function that way. And so it takes wisdom to decide, is this a top-tier issue that must be fought for, or can I handle somebody disagreeing with me on this? And can I coexist and love them and be united with them because we agree on the most important things and because we are in union with one another? This is what Kent Hughes is talking about. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's worth reading. It says, Christ's prayer for unity does not mean we should all be the same though many Christians mistakenly assume that. Too many think other believers should be just like them, carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same styles, educate their children in the same way, have the same likes and dislikes. That would be uniformity, not unity. We are not called to be Christian clones. And this is the sentence I really like that I wanted to get to. In fact, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church. 
It engenders a judgmental inflexibility that hurls people away from the church with deadly force. One of the gospel's glories is that it hallows our individuality while bringing us into unity. Unity without uniformity is implicit in Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. Do you get that? He says it doesn't mean uniformity. In fact, to demand that is one of the most disunifying things. If you demand that everybody lines up with every opinion, every preference of yours, it can't help but create disunity. So that mistaken idea of it can be, have tragic consequences for a church. So like I said, we waited this first point. We spent more time here because when we get our minds wrapped around this, what he's praying, Father, you and I are one. Father, unite them to us. And Father, since they're united to us, unite them with each other. And now we can see the ripple effects of it. In the next part of this, he prays that the effect of this would be that the world may know that God sent Jesus. It says that twice in verse 21 and verse 23. Uh, Look again at the end of verse 21. He says that they may be in us. Why? So that, it's a purpose statement, so that, this is the effect, the world may believe that you sent me. And then look at verse 23. He repeats it again. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. He says, as this is lived out, not just in theory, but in practical reality, then the world, which he's talked about many times throughout here, this world that is is hostile, that is polling, that doesn't know Christ, but he has a heart for and he wants to see turn. He says that if they see the church doing this, they will conclude something. They will conclude that this Jesus is real. This Jesus that they say they follow is really real. You think, what do we, what do we have to offer the world? Um, what, is a, what does our church, does a church have to offer the world? Um, you can find lots of funnier people out there than me, can't you? You're like, amen. Yes, that's right. Um, you could go on to Netflix. You could find a hundred comedians that are going to be funnier. You could go on to TED Talks and find more compelling presenters. You, you could go lots of places to find live music. It's not, it's not those things that if we think that's what's going to be compelling to people. What do we have to offer? Truth and love. Truth and love. And those are the marks that will be compelling, I think, to people. This is what Jesus says in John 13, 35. Same night, earlier in the same night as his prayer, he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Why? If you have love for one another. He says they'll see your love for each other and they'll conclude, yeah, they're Jesus' disciples. And in John 17, he says they'll conclude, and Jesus is really real. God really did send Jesus. He really is who he says he is. It has a missionary impact in that sense. There's a book a few years ago called uh, The Compelling Community uh, by Mark Dever and I think Jamie Dunlop, uh, co-authors. And and in this book, this is what they're talking about, the way that a a church community can have a compelling effect as it functions well. And and they contrast in there a unity that is a gospel plus unity and a unity that is a gospel revealing unity. And and here's, here's what those categories are. So the gospel plus unity is like this. Maybe you've got friends that they're, they're Christians, you share Christ in common, maybe you go to the same church, but you also have lots of other things in common, like same age, same hobbies, you have kids that are the same age, you do a lot of the same stuff, and, and, and Jesus, 
right? So it's a gospel plus, and it's easy to hang out with people like that, and it's natural to have friends like that. You, I hope you have friends like that. But is that compelling to the world, or is that simply what they could find elsewhere too? On the other hand, imagine a, a unity, a, a community with people that are 30 years reviewed, uh, re- removed from your age, older or younger. They like different things than you do. Maybe you're married. Maybe they're single. Maybe their socioeconomic level is drastically different, higher, lower. And yet, you gather with them, you pray for them, care about them. They care about you. Maybe you're in a small group together. There's a relationship there where it's almost only Jesus you have in common. And yet you love one another. That reveals something about the gospel. That is a compelling reality to the world. And I think that's what Jesus is praying for here. May, may people see that, the way they love each other, and say, I want that. I want that. So he prays, Father, may they be one. And Father, may that oneness speak to the world, that they would want that as well. He goes on to express his desire again. And his desire, in verse 24, that believers may be with him one day. This is an extension, really, of... It's prayer for us to be one with him, but I just want you to notice that it's not merely like an in theory oneness, but it's he wants us to be with him one day. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. This is a prayer that really follows up on what he had said that same night again in John 14 when he's told his disciples, hey, I'm about to go to the cross. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And now in this prayer, he says, Father, I I desire for them to be with me. You may feel sometimes like this world is not your home, and you may be suffering physically. You may be grieved. We continue to talk to people that are grieved reading story after story in Afghanistan. You may think, what is going on with this world? And it is not my home. And, and that's true. We will one day be, be with Jesus. Not just united to him in this spiritual union we experience now, but, but with him. And he says, I want that. I want them to be with me. I want them to see my, my glory on full display. And then it wraps up with a glorious summary. And in this last part of it, it repeats some of the same themes we've seen over and over again. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. These contrasts between the world and the disciples the world and you, if you've trusted in Christ, all throughout this prayer uh, from the very first few verses in John 17, and he comes back to again. He says, yet, verse 26, I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. God's very character, not just his name, like what do we call him, but his character. He says, I've made it known to them. I've told them, I've shown them, I've revealed it, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Glorious summary as he wraps up. Friends, what are the four words that maybe can summarize this prayer? Maybe you can think about them in your head. Maybe you can jot them down. He prays glorify. That was the first 
prayer in the first five verses. Then he prays, keep. Keep them. Then he prays, sanctify. Sanctify them so I can send them. And now he prays, unify. Make them one. Praise this in John 17. John 18, he gets betrayed. As the chapters unfold, he gets crucified. And it's this death on our behalf that makes all these other things possible. It's his death that makes unity with him possible. Our sanctification even possible. Because we are united with him in his death. The death he died, he died for us. We were laid in the tomb with him. is the language of Romans 6. Raised up with him by faith. So your sin is done for. It's no more. You're forgiven and you're in Christ. If you've trusted in him, you've responded in faith and repentance.